Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Live from Los Angeles, the Win Without Competing Show with Dr. Arlene Barrow, Career Coach One and author of Win Without Competing. Now, here's Dr. Arlene. Thank you, Virgil. In tough economic times, it is especially important to implement my Right Fit Method, which will enable you to win without competing in your career and in your life. Stephen Citron, who is my guest today, and Anne Edwards, who was my guest on April 1st, are a fascinating couple. Together, they wrote a great book, The In and Us, which I recently read. The story takes place in the Berkshire Hills of Massachusetts near the Tanglewood Music Festival. Straight from Manhattan, Stephen buys a huge farmhouse built in 1847, which he turns into a country inn with a Parisian menu. It is here that he met and fell in love with Anne, who moves into the inn. As a reader, you will feel as if you are actually at the inn, sharing their experiences. One guest brought an axe to the inn, and left it on his pillow when he departed. And, of course, Stephen, who has extremely high standards, would only serve marron glacé with vanilla ice cream. He told a guest who requested chocolate ice cream instead of vanilla that he would get sick because the combination of chestnuts and chocolate ice cream was wrong. The guest promptly walked out. And then there's Norman Mailer and Leonard Bernstein. We will talk more about the in and us shortly. Stephen Citron has mastered the right fit method without even knowing it. The Marron Glacé story is a superb example of his high standards. I hope that I have whetted your appetite to meet him. Stephen Citron authority extraordinaire on musical theater, composer, lyricist, author, lecturer, teacher, and product of the Juilliard School of Music. Mr. Citron's book, Songwriting, A Complete Guide to the Craft, is in its 17th edition, and a newly revised edition was recently published. In the field of musical biography, He has written three dual biographies, including Noel and Cole, The Sophisticates, chosen as one of the New York Times' best books of the year. At Carnegie Hall in his studio, he taught piano and composition for many years. Citron has published songs here and abroad, accompanied Edith Piaf, and wrote the score, music, and lyrics to one more song, the Judy Garland musical, which lives on after its debut in the mid-1980s. 
He will share stories of his glamorous life in Paris. Citron is married to the well-known celebrity biographer Ann Edwards, and they live in Beverly Hills, California. Welcome to Win Without Competing, Stephen. Oh, I'm glad to be here, Arlene. It's a pleasure to have you. I know our listeners are eager to hear more about the in and us. Let's Mm -hmm. save those charming anecdotes for later. Okay, okay. Where do we start? You, You lead me in. Okay, we're going to start with your early life. Mm-hmm. Tell us about where you grew up, your parents, and your dad's vision of what you should become. Oh, well, that's, that's a long time ago, but I can remember clearly being in the, in the playpen in Trenton, New Jersey, and singing and in music uh, uh, at three or four years old. Um, and everybody was marveled how how I could keep in a tune at at that age. My parents were both musical, and uh, my father was a sort of a, um, a CEO of of in uh, scrap iron and steels, and um, uh, he, and he felt that that uh, uh, music was a delightful hobby, but but never felt that that. Uh, uh, that I should go beyond that into into uh, into a lifelong career, but I had different ideas even from the beginning. Anyway, Trenton, New Jersey, is a is a small town on the East Coast. Uh, um, unfortunately, caught halfway between Philadelphia and New York, so culture passes it by. It never gets. Gets any much of theater or anything like that? People go to the the larger metropolises for that. So as a youngster, I was deprived of all that. But I had radio, and uh, and I could manage uh, what I as much as I could music. My sister and brother were were both non-musical, but uh, in Jewish families in those days in the in the thirties uh, and all. Uh, you were um, um, obliged. The boys were obliged to study the violin, uh, and the girls to, uh, studied the piano. My sister uh, studied the piano, and but she she was a terrible student. <laughs> and uh, um, but what? Tell us. I know what you did, though. I remember what? when we spoke the other day. Tell us what happened when she was having her music lesson, and you sat outside her door, listening. How old were you then, Stephen? I was about six. I was six there. And she was trying to play the um, Happy Farmer, a Schumann piece. And uh, I, I, got, I got the thing in my ear, and I had tried it when she was away from the house. And uh, so I went while my mother was talking to the teacher and paying her the 25 cents that you usually pay for <laughs> music lessons <laughs> in those days. And uh, um, I, I snuck over to the piano and played the, the tune that she had been trying to play. And the teacher stops and said, my goodness, he should have lessons, not, not Edith. And, uh, and that was it. And uh, so, so I got what I wanted really was piano lessons. And I made very quick progress by, by the time 
I was eight, I was playing third grade music, and then big pieces like Malaguanian, and even easier Chopin pieces and stuff like that. So there's no no question that, that I could do that. And then I started writing music. Um, as a child? Yes, as a child. Uh, even as, as, when I was about eight or nine, uh, I figured, well, well, these tunes kept coming into my head, and I I wrote them down in a simple fashion. And I even um, had my brother go and buy me a, a, a little a music manuscript book, and uh, and I put my name on the front, and then I said under my name, I said, better known as Beethoven Citron, uh, not uh, not my own name. So I figured that I was I was a, a fledgling composer at that time. Always torn between the com- composition and creating my own songs and and playing um, other people's music, and still today. In terms of your career dream, did you then really dream that you would become Beethoven? Well, a composer, a composer. Yes, I dreamt that I would become a, a composer and also a pianist. There are many pianists who play their own compositions, and um, and that that was that attracted me too. And and in in addition, all aspects of music attracted me. And I think your listeners have to know that that. That um, to win without competing, with, you you don't have to compete. You you have to win uh, by keeping an open mind, uh, a kind of a, an open door to to what you're going to be doing. So whether it was composition or piano or popular music, all of those areas uh, were intriguing to me. Did you consciously keep raising the standard in your mind? with the idea that you wanted to perform better and better and better. Were you aware of that as a child, do you think? Oh, yes. Yes, I, I was aware. And uh, um, my piano teacher uh, was was a great help because she entered me into the uh, National Piano Contest. And so that you um, you did, first of all, a program of three or four things, and then I was doing a program of 15 or 20 things, um, big big pieces and uh, you got all kinds of diplomas and medals for that and one of those things. So she yes, kept raising the bar. She kept yes. raising the bar and helping you Absolutely. And I kept following and, and raising it to myself too and saying, well, I want to play this piece. Oh, when can I play such and such a piece? And when Wonderful. can I play Malaguena? You know? Tell us the story of how your dad enrolled you at Wharton and what happened there. Well, um, after high school, when I was uh, showed great promise, and then I uh, uh, played with the school orchestra and all of that, but my father uh, said, that's very nice. He said, but remember Uncle Dave. And I said, well, Uncle Dave, yes. Uncle Dave was was uh, um, my uncle and, and uh, married to my father's younger sister, and my father had had to support him. Dave was a very good violinist, and he played with Victor Herbert's uh, orchestra. Victor Herbert was a well-known American composer, and he had a big orchestra in, in New York. And uh, but th- there were no jobs jobs for for people in music that that days in the 30s and the 40s. And 
And uh, so, so my father said, there's no way you're going to make a livelihood out of music. Besides, I'm a poor, I was, came here as a poor immigrant, but, but I want you to, to go over now that the business is very lucrative. You uh, and you like fine things. Uh, you can uh, you can um, um, I'll enroll you in the Wharton School of Finance in Philadelphia, and I'll give you a suite of rooms if you like there, and I'll give you your own Cadillac and uh, and a charge account at all the stores. So your dad uh, was your parents were wealthy then, Stephen? Yes, they were. Yes, and. Uh, and all of that, so, and so I couldn't resist it. I one, I said, well, I'd rather go to a music uh, school or conservatory. And well, maybe give this a try. You might like it. And I did. And I entered in, into the Wharton School. And uh, after six months, um, I had uh, an F in business law, an F in accounting, and an F in in um, uh, some other uh, business subject, and A's in music and, and English and all those things. So the dean sent for my father, and he said, uh, well, well, this is uh, this is obviously the boy in the wrong, wrong uh, big fish in a wrong pond. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I like that, a big fish in a wrong pond. Okay, that's terrific. Wrong, so obviously the dean understood the concept of the right fit, which yes, you were very was, lucky. They right. didn't, he didn't want to push you to do something that you obviously didn't like. Right, absolutely. It was obvious that this was this was wrong for me. So he he called my father in, and then he, and they said, I remember my father coming out of the office, and he said, Well, he, he, I said, Well, what, what did he say, Pop? He said, Well, I think he said that you're, I'm driving this boy crazy. So. I, he said, you, "You can, you can, ha- you can go into music if you want to," and I said, "Well, good. I went. I'll go straight to the top." And I applied for the Juilliard School of Music in New York, uh, which is the finest conservatory of music probably in the world. Um, and in those days, it, th- it taught piano and composition, and um, singing, and a few other of the uh, classic arts. But these days, it teaches drama. And teaches uh, ballet and all all the arts combined. So it's it's and I've let, kept t- touch with it with it as my alma mater. It's wonderful. How did you feel when you received your letter of acceptance from the Juilliard School? No, just I was on cloud nine. Anybody would be that. I think I. Um, I I just couldn't wait. I I ran to the piano and played my favorite pieces, and and I looked at my composition book and polished them off, because I had had uh, two majors. I had composition and and piano, both of them together, and so I had to bring my compositions to the to a board, and I had to perform for a board too. How did you um, feel about performing? Were you comfortable performing? Never comfortable. Always, always a nervous stomach and all and the thing. Uh, later on, when I did postgraduate work in Paris, uh, 
I would throw up before every concert somehow. And uh, but that's not unusual because Vladimir Horowitz, the great great Russian virtuoso, he gets sick in the wings of Carnegie Hall too, and they have a little little um, pot there for him to <laughs> to to, uh, to throw up in. <laughs> so. Okay, all right. So you're saying that the great musical geniuses do throw up before right. performances. performances. Right, right. Okay. Sometimes. Yeah, right. So e- now, even though that's their, that's their profession. Yeah. Um, did Juilliard meet your expectations or exceed your expectations? Uh, well, it... it, it, it uh, or both. It, it did both. I mean, I was, I was a good student there. I don't think I was an outstanding... Virtuoso. Uh, I didn't blow my own horn because I I um, got very attached to one of the teachers who taught 16th century counterpoint, a a, um, a, a, a sort of a dead art of of, uh, of musical musical creation, and this man. Uh, um, fascinated me not only did he did he write this this archaic um old fashioned music he also wrote some popular songs and i i was writing and i was writing some popular songs at that time i did a review with a with somebody from international house and i and i and uh, mr jacoby who was my teacher and was interested in in me in in both aspects of it the classical music and in the and in the popular music so he was quite a wonderful thing and he he exceeded my expectations when you were graduated from Juilliard what did you do next well i i i didn't know what to do and I waited for a few days at home, and I got a call from this man, Mr. Jacoby, my wonderful uh, teacher, and, and he said, what are you going to do? And uh, I, I said, uh, well, you handed me the diploma yourself. Um, you, that makes me a composer, and it says right here, a Bachelor of Science in Composition. And uh, he said, well, um, I don't think you, uh, you, I think you need seasoning. I think if you just go out and start to uh, bang on doors as a composer and say, here I am, you're, you're going to starve. So I think you need seasoning. And uh, since you have some French family um, you, where you could stay part of the time with um, and you speak pretty good French, and uh, I, I think I can get you a French government scholarship to study um, abroad for three years. And then you could take a postgraduate diploma in at the École Normale de Musique. And so, mm. how many days did you have to get ready for this big oh, adventure? Oh yes, he he he, uh, he said, uh, you know, it, it, it's uh, almost September, and the term starts there, like right after Labor Day, and. Uh, so you have only about ten days to get ready, get your passport, and get yourself all together, and get there. I said I'll, I could do it. I can leave tomorrow if I got my passport. <laughs> he said, he said I'll help you get get the passport, and 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 uh, and he did. And uh, so I'm off. I went on the Liberté uh, that next week and landed there, smack dab in Paris. And um, I went to the École Normale in the school in Paris, and I had some wonderful experiences. And I thought was studying with this great, great 
very great composer um, who had pieces played at the opera and all the concert hall all over the world. And uh, it was it was quite an event and quite a uh, and um, and for for recreation, I very often went to a to a nightclub there on the, um, the um, right off the Champs Elysees, which is called the Club de Paris. It's the club. It's a, it's sort of a special private club, and uh, but anybody could go get in there, and uh, and it was a rather expensive thing. And I, and I would save my pennies and go there to the bar and maybe have a drink and listen to the the pianist. And in one corner, they had a big grand piano, and this good pianist would play, and. Uh, um, one evening when um, he said he was going on a break um, and, uh, and he saw me hungrily looking at the keys. He said, would you like to, are you a piano? Do you play? And I said, yes. He said, would you like to try? Oh, well, I'm off for 15 minutes. I said, sure. And uh, I sat down and I played some Gershwin songs. And people thought that I was the regular pianist of the, or who came in and they made a couple of requests and in that 15 minutes, I played maybe three or four different songs uh, that that they had requested, and it was quite good. And then the regular pianist came back, and he said, "Oh, you are good. You can sit in any time here." And uh, and so I used to go there for recreation. I came, and after after about a month or two, uh, he said, uh, "I have to go to Lyon to see my parents. My mother's not well." And uh, uh, I don't want to give, give the job to anybody because it's a good job. And um, do, uh, do you think you would like to take over uh, and play? And I said, um, yeah. I didn't even ask how much does it pay. He said, well, you know, we have to, we open at 11 o'clock at night and we close at dawn. But usually the people are gone by 4 o'clock in the morning. And uh, I said, well, that sounds okay. I can manage that and sleep during, get a nap during the day. I was young enough. And um, so How old I, were you then, Stephen? I was 24, 25. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so, and, and so I, I can do that. And, uh, and I did it, and it was lovely. And I, then I just would get into my tuxedo at, uh, in the evening and go there, and they... And I had about one o'clock in the morning. I had my supper uh, served most elegantly, uh, sitting on a banquet and and uh, relaxed. And uh, and uh, people would come over, and and they all thought that I was a celebrity. And then I would go back to the piano and play, play. And we had lots of movie stars: Bergman and Ava Gardner, and um, oh, they all came. And, and, and often the ballet people came. All the ballet roofs that people were appearing in in uh, in Paris at the Opera would come. And to the end. I remember one night, um, Ava Gardner came in, and she was so beautiful. She was with a, um, a whole entourage of boys following her and as she came through the red velvet curtains that that separated the club from the street uh, I played You Are Too Beautiful for One Man Alone and she got the message and she came over to me with a dazzling smile I can still see that smile Was she as beautiful as 
how she looked in the movies? More. More, more. beautiful in person. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yes, was. Anyway, the the um the uh, club the Paris was it was a real real adventure for me and um I enjoyed it and and after two years of playing of uh, learning everything about about um composition and doing doing serious composition I developed a sort of way of, of teaching also. A lot of people would come to me and say, yeah, so that during the day they they would ha- want to have some lessons. They said, well, I have a good ear. Can I, can you teach me to play? And I said, yes, I can teach, teach you to play. I found a system with, with three or four chords, which almost anybody can do, even on a guitar, but it seems to work best on the piano for a beginning. And three or four chords, and then they... And then they put a different, a bunch of different tunes on top, and with the same chords, so this sounds like like a different song immediately, and um, that seemed to work very well. So I was successful there in the teaching, and developed a, a system of teaching that would that would follow me throughout my life, and and really make my career and make my make money for me. Um, and because the club de Paris didn't pay uh, Tell more us what they. I remember what you initially how much you were paid, and then you asked for a raise. Tell us what, how much. Yeah, you I was paid, paid a thousand a thousand francs, which sounds like a a lot of money, but that would translate into three three dollars and fifty cents. And uh, three dollars and fifty cents a week or a day. A, a night. A night. Three dollars and fifty cents a day. Okay. Right. And I was paid every night. Uh, uh, before I went home, they didn't pay in advance or anything, and that was the six nights we were closed. We were open every day except Sunday, and, um, and so. But then I, you also asked for a raise. Am I correct? I did. I did. Well, well, what happened was the the uh, pianist who who I was filling in for, um, Alex. Uh, Said, wrote to me and he said his mother is not well and he wants to stay in Lyon, which is about 300 miles from Paris, and he wants to stay there and he's got a job at the Lyon Hilton. And um, do I want the job there at the Club de Paris? And I wrote him back, yes. So I, the, the boss came to me and he said, okay, well, you, now you're a full-time employee and um, we'll pay you uh, 2,000 francs. That's $7 a night. But you could have a good meal um, in a restaurant in those days for 50 cents, really. And uh, you could get a bottle of wine for for uh, 75 cents or something like that. What about so, your lodging? How much did that cost? It didn't cost very much, but, uh, but it cost more than I could afford. But one day I saw an ad in the paper uh, that said, uh, a free room. Beautiful room for somebody who was willing to, to do a, a little bit of butlering. And I said, couldn't make make this. It was in the New York, the international edition of the Herald Tribune, which was published every day in Paris. And um, and and, so, and uh, I thought, what can that be, butlering? And so I went over to this house, a very elegant old old uh, man, mansion flat. 
but everything was falling apart. The 16th, the 19th century, 18th century uh, furniture, the arm would fall off, or, or these these damask uh, sofas were all very worn. The ceiling was 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 cracked, and the plaster was falling down with the nymphs and cherubs and all all over the place. And uh, I could see that they were in in bad situation um, financially, but they. But Madame came into the room, and she was the most elegant. And uh, and she said, all you have to do is serve dinner or occasional tea and uh, take care of the, um, the dishes, the, our, our dishware and our, and our, and our uh, goldware. They didn't have silverware. They had goldware. I found out later it was solid gold and very valuable. Um, and um, so I I moved right in. I said I need my to take my, to get my piano. I had a rented piano, and that that was it. And I practiced uh, classic music during the day. I performed at night, and uh, and I did the occasional uh, tea party or served an occasional dinner. They had a they gave me a a, a uniform. Uh, a, Beautiful um, tuxedo kind of uniform with a striped vest, like like a real uh, maitre d' or something, and I got into that and I served tea. Oh, and one of my duties was counting the silverware, the goldware afterwards. After the I remember one tea party she had, Madame had a big big tea party, and I served. Uh, she served little sandwiches and things. And I counted the cleaned the silver and put the goldware and put it away. And I said, Madame, there's um, two two teaspoons are missing. And I said, I think it was that that Madame so and so, the the one with the big uh, hat, uh, who uh, asked me for an extra teaspoon. I gave her one, and then she she said uh, she said. Um, no, I need another uh, teaspoon. So I think she took the teaspoons. Madame said, oh, no, 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 she didn't. She didn't take the teaspoons. I said, how do you know? And she said, I know. We, we've been selling off. That's how do you think we live? We've been selling off the goldware. But don't worry. We have full service for 24. And, <laughs> and, and um, the, it will probably outlast us. Anyway, Madame took me in the kitchen very often and showed me how to make a blanquette de veau. I learned to cook from her, and I learned to cook Parisian uh, food with with no shortcuts, the exact thing, and and how to make a pate and how to how to make an omelette from the beginning, straight straight to the most complicated blanquette de veau. Who would know that she was getting you ready to to uh Buy and establish your own inn. I didn't know that, that that that, but I kept. It's like when you when you have something in in your dossier or something in your in your briefcase that you can have. I can remembered all those recipes, and uh, although when I get back to the states, I didn't I I didn't cook, but they were obviously there in the back of my head, and uh, and so so that, that was. And you obviously um, enjoyed the cooking as well. I did. I, it's all part of living in Paris, I think. Eating, uh, shopping, and shopping for the food, and cooking it, and uh, appreciating it, and talking about it. And it's, it's, it's all part of living abroad, I think. 
tell us the story of the man who came into the Club de Paris. Yes. Who wanted you to write songs for him? Mm-hmm. And what he did with them, and how you got to Edith Piaf. Okay, yes, that's, that's an interesting story, I think, because I was playing along at the at the Club de Paris, and um, I had a very good following who would come here and, and listen to me and talk at a supper club. And this very tall, good-looking man came in one, one night, very drunk, and he said um, in broken English, can you put... Can you put lyrics? Uh, can you put music to lyrics? And I, I thought he meant, can one put a music to lyrics? And I said, well, yes, that can be done. And he said, well, I have, I am um, the lover of uh, Jacqueline Francois, and we have just split. Jacqueline Francois was was like um, dinosaurs uh, at that time. The, uh, uh, a the French version of dinosaur, Stephen. Yeah. Yes, yes, and very popular singer, and dark beauty, and uh, very, very popular. And um, and so he said, and I just split with her. I'd taken all my lyrics that I wrote for her, and they're here in this in this notebook. And um, I'll give them to you if you can put lyrics to them, uh, music to them. I think. I think maybe we can do something with it. I, I looked them over. They didn't look very interesting to me. But but I took them home, and uh, and one morning um, when I had nothing to do, I fiddled with a few of them, and and um, and I wrote uh, music to to um, four of them, and I put them back in the um, in the uh, folder, and brought them down to the club and put them hid them in the piano bench. And uh, he didn't come in for a month, and and then he came in a drunk again, and uh, and he said, "Well, what happened to my songs? And, and, and my, did you ever look it up? But there's just where I left." I said, "No, I took them home. I looked and looked through them. I found four that were interesting, and I put music. They're they're on the top of the pile, and." And so I gave gave him that, and uh, again I didn't hear from him for a couple of months, and then uh, at eight o'clock in the one morning he he knocked at the door, and uh, Madame and he woke up Madame where I was staying, and he said I want to see uh, Citroen, he said I want to see him, and he says and then he got me and he says now you go we have to go down and sign a contract. They're publishing our songs, and I had never had anything published then by at that point. And so I ran down with him. We had them published, and he said, "Now we'll take them to the top. We'll take them to Edith Piaf." And uh, now Edith tell Piaf. Us, tell us, tell us who Edith Piaf is. I think that mm-hmm. many of our listeners don't won't know Good. who she is. Right. The name Piaf means sparrow. Um, a piaf is a, in French is a little sparrow. She was she was France's little sparrow. She was a, a very short, um, uh, slim lady, who had a tremendous voice, uh, full of vibrato and 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 a kind of a wonderful style of voice that you could remember with with uh, kind of a. 
fulsome sound. And she wrote things like La Vie en Rose, which which recently was a picture of, of her life, actually. She was France's most popular singer and probably the one of the, the greatest of all French singers. And um, she had led a distillate life. And uh, she would appear in a nightclub with a black velvet dress and high-heeled shoes, black velvet dress and a, and a sing, single diamond clip uh, on her shoulder. And she, and she had... And she looked so wonderfully like a waif, like a like a piaf, like a like a sparrow, and mm. she sang so so fully beautifully. So she was she was. Was she physically perfect. very petite then too? Yes, she was only five foot one or one. I think maybe maybe five foot in heels actually. She was very oh, small. Boy. And, but she was a giant, you know. You can be small. She was a giant on stage, and and, and she was tremendous. And uh, so and she liked my one of my songs uh, the, of the four that we brought to her. And uh, uh, and she she was tremendous. She made a she invited uh, Robin, my lyricist and me to to uh, luncheon and she made rabbit stew rabbit stew yeah. how 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 was it oh well it was delicious and delicious and uh, it comes out and you know it's, they always say rabbit tastes like chicken it's a deep brown uh, reddish brown kind of thing and she served it out in a and uh, ladles and big bowls, and I said, "Oh, the sauce is divine! I said, it's, it's wonderful." I said, "How do you make the sauce?" And she says, "Oh, it's fresh killed blood, blood." I oh said, boy! Blood. Oh no, no, thank you. I had eaten most. I had. I was about to ask for some more. But I, then I realized that, that she says, "Oh yes, it has to be fresh killed, and that's what makes it so good." <laughs> and that was it. as soon as she said "fresh killed blood," that was it for you. <laughs> that was it. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, but she liked my song, and uh, she said, "I'll take it. I want an exclusive." And uh, and Robin said, well, "No, no, we don't give an exclusive. You yes, we, either that or nothing." So he said, "Okay, we'll give her, he gave her an exclusive." And uh, she uh, didn't record it, but she performed it. And it was it was a song called La, La Chanson Quotidienne, which means the daily song. It was about um, it was about about uh, how we we entreat God. To give us a daily song uh, in addition to our daily bread. Uh, Can you uh, sing a few uh, lines of it, Stephen? Yeah, sure. Um, La chanson quotidienne va et vient les pieds et formera rangelle meur un soir dans la rue. It means that, that this, this little ditty. Is, um, uh, goes around barefoot in the streets and is just like a child of, of fortune. And so we beg God to take care of us and and give us our daily bread and and our daily song. It's a very lovely song, and she she did a wonderful job with it. And 
she made it sound so glorious, you know, and so they're like it's like I believe it's like that kind of a song, that kind mm. of a yeah, deeply very, emotional. Very, yes. So she then, was, how did you become her accompanist? Oh, when when um, she came to New York. Um, she, so you she, left Paris after three years and returned to New York then? Yes, I did. And uh, I returned to New York and I, I, um, I was working, I, I opened a studio at Carnegie Hall and I started teaching the method that I had d- developed there in Paris. And one day, um, the orchestra leader who had orchestrated uh, Piaf's um, uh, my song uh, and uh, that I, that I had made, written for Piaf, and uh, he said he called me and he said uh, um, the the pianist Piaf's pianist has to stay in in Paris because he's having his first baby or his wife's having his first baby, and uh, can you fill in for an engagement for for her for uh, just be six weeks. And I said, uh, "Oh, I don't know." He said, "Well, I'll teach you the music. You know, you know most of it, I'm sure. And it's not very, very hard and stuff like that. And you're part in the orchestra, and you're the, you're behind the curtain anyway. So, so it's, it's a, a 15-piece orchestra. So I said, "Okay, I'll try." And she had an engagement at the Versailles nightclub in in New York, and uh, I took it and. Uh, I did, and I played it, played her engagement. It was very good, and I enjoyed it too. Going further, huh? Marion. Who is Marion, and how did you help her when you were teaching oh. at Carnegie Hall? Yeah, well, when I began, when I began teaching. Uh, I, as I said earlier, I loved to teach adults. Uh, who wanted to play? They didn't have to have much talent, but they needed a good ear. And uh, and then one day, this lovely young woman, who was a secretary in, in the office, uh, came in and she said, "I am Marion. Her name is Marion. I don't remember her last name." And she and she said, um, "I'm the one that is in every chorus at every at high school." The teacher says, "Marion." You move your mouth with the rest of the people, but don't sing because you you throw everybody off. You're so out of tune. And I've had all this, but now that I'm working uh, full time and I have a little bit put by a little money, I would like to have a lesson uh, with with you every week, maybe two lessons a week if possible. And um, and maybe you could teach me to sing. I said. Well, I usually work with people with a good ear, but and she says I have I have no ear, I'm no. I said, well, everybody's got some sort of an ear, so I started her off with just one note. I said, okay, we'll work on this one note, and I'll play it, and I sing it. You copy me, you try. I I I I play. I sang. Oh. And she said, oh. <laughs> uh, 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 I said, no, you're far. Bring it up, bring it up a little, and, and gradually over over the um, over about six months, 
notes. We got that one note, and then we got, went on. I found a song called All of a Sudden My Heart Sings, which is basically a scale line. All of a sudden my heart sings. When I remember little things. da 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 and so forth. And she, she uh, it took her um, uh, about two years to do that one, just that song, because it's the scale line going up and coming down. And, but she did it, not badly. And I used to have student meetings every six or eight weeks for every students where they, so many of them were very, very good professional people. And, and many of them played played very good piano, and many of them sang very, very marvelous, sophisticated supper club songs. And so I said, Marion, you're going to sing in the, in the um, student recital. Oh, she said, I can't do that. And I said, yes, you can. And, and and you're going to sing that one song that took you two years, and you did. And although it wasn't good, she sang it, and she got a great round of applause. Oh, that's wonderful. And she was so tickled because she had conquered something in herself. So you did more than just teach her how to sing a song. You really help her to build her self-confidence. Absolutely, yeah. Through your yes, method. That's what she needed. She needed because that thing was was hanging hang over her, and that teacher, um, it was terrible. You know that that embarrassment to say in front of the other people in the chorus that. Right? If she had said it to her quietly, maybe it would have been one one thing. But to say it in front of all the other students was terrible. Going further to the long-awaited famous inn. Yes. I want to read the dedication that you and Anne wrote. All right. This book is dedicated to all the holiday inns without which there would never have been a need for Orpheus ascending. That's true. The uh, holiday inn, it doesn't, it doesn't take off on the holiday, and most of them are pretty pretty ordinary kind of things. But, uh, but Orpheus Ascending, which I named the inn, um, was, I'm sure mo- most of your listeners know who Orpheus was, but just for those few who don't, um, in mythology, Orpheus was one the god of music, and he had his his lyre with him, and he's always pictured with a lyre. And he was, and he was in love with Eurydice, uh, who was a beautiful nymph. And uh, I don't remember for what reason she was in the underworld, and he had to go down into the underworld and bring her back. And he played his lyre for her, and she had to follow him. Uh, but he. He, he he had she had to follow him and and um, he was never to turn around and look at her as as they ascended from the underworld into the upper world and I felt like the god of music like Orpheus when I first saw this 1840 dowager I call it in a beautiful ramshackle. Um, she needed much, much care and 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 uh, loving, loving care. And when I saw this place, I felt like Orpheus because it was in the highest elevation in Stockbridge, which is a beautiful place, a place where the 
um, Boston Symphony give, uh, gives its summer concerts. And so, uh, although, and, and I was in my second marriage at that time, and I had a three-year-old son uh, who I figured I had to get some grass under his feet, and um, the, my marriage was not going well. My wife then was a sculptor, and um, she she had no place to work and or no place to practice her sculpting, and and so I I, I remembered how beautiful it was for the summer of listening to the. Boston Symphony under the trees and all that. I said, let's move to the country. I'll buy an inn. I know. I remember my my Paris days. I remember how to how to cook. I could cook cook uh, uh, simple food. I could play the piano in between, and and we could fix it up. And and you could you could have an art gallery in there. You could sell pictures, and you could you could maybe have a room there where you could do some sculpting. And maybe we could save this crumbling marriage, and maybe the kid could have a, a little little uh, question of being able to go out and and play um, among the trees. She said, "Okay, we'll do it." And I didn't have much money then. I was working at as as a cocktail pianist at, a, at an elegant uh, place, uh, but I had a lot of good students who who did have money and who believed in me, and I. Well, how about uh, would you would you like to invest in an inn? And they they said I said well, yes, you can stay there wherever. And and they, I talked them into it. And several of them, uh, six of them, got together, and uh, there was suddenly enough money to 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 buy the uh, to, to get a mortgage and buy the inn, etc. And I called it Orpheus Ascending. Uh, because I felt like Orpheus coming up from the underworld to this height. The name was a mixed blessing, but one day um, an, an elderly lady on a cane came in, and um, her chauffeur parked in our parking lot, and she came into the inn, and she said um, she had read a review of our, that we had very good food, and, and uh, she said, I came all the way here. Is this Oedipus extending? <laughs> and I said, no, it's Orpheus ascending, but, but you, I think you're in the right place. Anyway, the inn was a joy, and it was our own Camelot. It was uh, kind of a wonderful thing. And, I, and there I met the love of my life 36 years ago, Anne Edwards, uh, whom you've interviewed and whom you list as I guess I've heard. And um, and she was very beautiful, and I fell in love with her and immediately. Well, what's interesting, I think, is that she walked she walked into your inn and also into your life at the same moment. That's true. That's uh, you told me that you married the first wife to get out of your home, mm-hmm. the second to have a child, and then right. the third for love. How did you know that Anne was the right fit woman for you? I don't know how I knew, but I think when you're when you fall in love, really fall in love, you know, you know you can't be separated from that person. And it's 37 going on 37 years ago. Um, but I knew that that this was for me. I 
I remember that we would ride back and forth. Uh, while I was at the inn and before I really uh, knew her well, she, uh, a friend of mine asked if I would take her into New York uh, with me because I was going to teach at Carnegie Hall. After after the my second marriage collapsed, I had my little boy on on the weekends, but during the week I had to I went to Carnegie Hall to teach and drove in uh, at six o'clock in the morning from Stockbridge and then drove back on Thursday nights uh, and I opened the inn on weekends um, and um, Anne asked if she could ride in with me because she had importance with her editors and she was in the process of writing a book and uh, I said sure and so we it's a it's a long ride to Stockbridge three and a half hours and um, so on the way there we would talk and on the way back we would talk a great deal so you're you're closeted for seven hours in a in a car and um, after three or four weeks you seem to know everything about that person and then after about a month she gave me a copy of of a book of hers called Shadow of a Lion which I adored which is about blacklisting and what she suffered in blacklisting and uh, or gray listing as she was and I read about a hundred pages that night when I dropped her off uh, at her house in Stockbridge and uh, I called her on the phone and said this is the most fascinating book and it's just so beautifully written I'm so in awe and by the way uh, I love you and I hung up because I was just too embarrassed to go any farther and uh, I knew that I loved her then and uh, I saw her that was, saw her a few days later and I introduced her to my son and uh and I said that this is a very special person to me. And he fell in love with her, too. What I think is interesting, when you and Anne uh, wrote The In and Us, and you mm. alternated um, who was speaking, there was a section that talked about a conversation between both of you about the toothpaste and how you both left the cap off of the toothpaste. Yes, yes. And we talked about habits and about how living together, I, and I said at that point, uh, I'll leave the cap off of the, off the toothpaste generally because it, it seems pointless to put the cap on when I <laughs> use it again the next morning, and it doesn't seem to dry out in the tube. And she said, I do the same thing. I said, you know, when... When you're in love with somebody, that seems like okay, but 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 if you're not in love, that seems like a disgusting habit. And uh, she said, I agree. The love can make you blind to to uh, the other's faults, and that was something that I remembered always. And so it gives you a kind of tolerance to to uh, other people and especially if they if they do the same thing like like you do and then then it works very well those, let's, those. let's go a bit further um how did you manage to cook while playing the piano 
and singing. I know you ran back and forth between the kitchen and the piano. Well, it wasn't easy. It wasn't wasn't easy in the man in the beginning, and of course, shortly uh, uh, once we were a bit of success, I hired a cook to help me out to be in the kitchen all the time, and that was also a mixed blessing. But in the beginning, I I played the piano, and if I and I served very little food. By that I mean very very few things. Very good. Uh, um, I would serve a filet mignon or a, a, a crepe uh, with with a cryptic curvette with shrimp in it, or um, or a few things, uh, uh, so that we were basically a supper club with a little bit of food. If I put on a filet mignon, which we served, um, and and then I made a sauce of sour cream and brandy, and uh, if I put it on, I, I remembered I could play um, uh, It's All Right With Me, which takes a, about a minute and a half for a very rare one. And and when I finished that, run into the kitchen tailor. And if if I if it was medium, I could play the chorus twice and, and, and three times if it was well done, and, um, which I didn't believe in anyway. But uh, anyway, that, that's the way I worked well, with that, I mean, you're an expert in managing the process. I mean, I nobody didn't. can take charge the way you're taking charge, running between the kitchen and I the was, piano. I was in charge. Well, it was my end, so I, I, I was proud, of, proud of it, and I was proud of the food and proud, and proud of, the, of, the, um, of the meat, the quality of the meat that I bought. And and so the, I was proud of what I served, and it shows. You get good reviews, good restaurant reviews, um, for and the people start to come immediately. But then Anne and I both realized that that we were not innkeepers. We went to a, to a nearby inn run by a French family, a um, father and a mother, and three three children. Uh, uh, two of them, two of the girls, uh, were waitresses, and and um, one of the boys was a was in the kitchen. Um, and, and I and I could see that they were it died in the wool innkeepers, and we were not that. We were artists. We were writers, and we were writing books and and. Um, which was which was our profession, and that was we had more to do in life than that than to run it in and just to please people. We had we had important, really more important things to do, and that's why I started to writing books about what I knew about about um, the Cole Porter or Oscar Hammerstein or Stephen Sondheim or all those books that I wrote. Um, uh, Stephen, tell us before you sold the inn. Um, yes. How did you decide who was the right fit in terms of the next owner? Because you very clearly delineate, delineated that in the book. How and did I decide yeah, who, who was right? You had two different people that came to look at the inn. Right. Well, I had to have somebody who loved it, you know, rather than somebody who didn't want to, who wanted to exploit it. I didn't want anybody to exploit it because it was my baby and it was something beautiful, and it was, as I said, a Camelot, a place where you could, where you could uh, enjoy. And when Anne came in, it got even more beautiful. She. She, with her exquisite taste, had um, the soap and part of, imported from Paris, and um, uh, uh, and, and French toiles on the walls, and and 
um, so it was even more beautiful kind of thing. You didn't want to pass that on for any amount of money to somebody who was going to destroy it. So, so we were very careful about about who we sold it to. One well, do we story. have more questions? Well, one more story before we conclude the the end, and that yeah. is, you used a clever strategy to get rid of the guest with the axe. Oh, yes, yes. There was a guest who came in, and there was a talk around Stockbridge at that time that there was an axe murderer, and um, and this man checked into the into the inn. He said he was out chopping wood, uh, and he 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 uh, um, and he needed a place to stay. Uh, he didn't look. He looked sort of fishy to me, but. Uh, uh, he paid up front, and uh, so we all went to bed that night. And uh, and uh, uh, at about eleven o'clock, I um, I woke up all the guests. I said, "Something's wrong with the heater. Um, something's wrong with the heater. I've, I've turned it off. It's, I think it's going to explode. I think you'll all have to go elsewhere." <laughs> and I woke them all up, and and said because I I was terrified that that this 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 was the axe murderer. But I, I never found out. But but this man left his axe on the pillow as he checked out. He was so angry. And the others, and the others, I found accommodations elsewhere. And they were all relieved because they, they I, when I explained what had happened. Going further, songwriting, mm-hmm. a complete guide to the craft, was initially published in eight, in 1985 and newly revised in 2008. We don't usually think of textbooks as bestsellers. What's the secret to your success? I don't know. I don't know. That book has everything in it, I think. And I have had so so many people call me and say, or write to me and say, how they learn so many things from songwriting because it doesn't play down. It, 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 you, you can write a song with just two chords or you can know the most complicated um chord sequence i have i have so many things in, in there that you can uh, capture everything i have every kind of song described it's a big fat book and and uh it's used um in high school not so much in high school but mostly in colleges as a as a textbook on songwriting i was the first one to teach songwriting at the new school in new york a course in songwriting, and so I developed this book uh, with with almost everything. I put almost everything I know about writing a song into the book, and I think every it has something there for everybody. Well, perhaps that's the secret to your success that <laughs> that's, that's that an ordinary person can write a song. Yes, yes. You don't that's have to right. be an extraordinary musical talent. Right, you don't have to, and it may not be a great song, but it'll be a song, and it'll be a, a, done in professional style if you just follow the, the the way the way I tell you to write it down. You've written three dual biographies, notably yeah. Noel and Cole, The Sophisticates. Mm-hmm. What is the Citron brand of biography? Well, the dual biographies, it, it came about by... Um, by a kind of a fluke, because I, I put down ten, ten books. One songwriting uh, was a bestseller uh, in that, 
in in uh, the trade books. Uh, once that that was, I went to my publisher and I said, I'd like to write ten. There are ten people I'd like to write about, and he said, I can't publish. I can't give you a contract for ten books, but I can give you a contract for five if you do if you do, double them up. I said, he said, that's a good idea. Like, well, no, Coward and Cole Porter were both the sophisticates, and they wrote very uh, sophisticated kind of music. Hammerstein and, and Lerner both wrote the book to the, the musical at the same time as writing lyrics. So they, they fitted very well together. And Sondheim and Lloyd Webber um, are, are both examples of the new musical. I had a couple of others uh, that I was going to do, but I got tired of, of that series and then wrote a biography, a single biography of Jerry Herman. And I'm working on another biography of Cole Porter now. I'm curious um, also, too, about the caliber, because I know we talked about uh, yesterday the fact that these dual biographies was, were published by Oxford Press yes. and that their standard is very high and that you did really scholarly research to do those biographies, That's which to true. me would be um, a signature aspect of your brand. Mm-hmm. That's true. That's true. I, I did it. Uh, Oxford books are intended to last for the through the through the ages, and they print them on on acid-free paper, so that they don't they don't yellow. And uh, um, the, the the their books are, are that that way. And and I I write for the university press, which is quite different from my wife, and and she writes for more commercial uh, kind of books. Um, but but I uh, my books sell fewer copies, but but uh, they they will last for longer, I think. Well, that well yours they have a very targeted audience. I think her books are aimed at the general public. Am I correct, Steve? That's true. That's yeah. true. Well, I mean, I mean her books have a wider interest, like um, Diana or Streisand or Judy Garland, or uh, they all have a different a great audiences. Greater audiences than the people who want to write songs. They're not. There are not that many people in the world. Now you've observed musical theater for more than fifty years. That's How right. How has it evolved? Would you say? Well, I'm, I wrote all about that in in uh, Sondheim and Lloyd Webber because that's ah. called the new musical. Uh, it has changed greatly and and followed on on the line, but it's still basically a song and dance. Show and uh, um, certainly there are certain rock musicals that that keep keep coming up and re- even get revived, like Hair and uh, and Stoller and Lever and and um, there there are many uh, musicals and the musical has changed, but it's but it's still basically the song and dance show with the dancing coming in between. You are a composer, lyricist, author, lecturer, teacher, and authority on musical theater. How do you want to be remembered, and what is your legacy? Oh, I don't know how I want to be remembered. Just as somebody who, who, I, I think I want to be remembered as somebody who could do, who who loved music and who wanted to, to to show the music to the world. 
any kind of music, all kinds of music, popular music, serious music, uh, choral music, count, 16th century counterpoint, and pop music, and hip-hop, and, and rap, and anything, and everything, everything to do with music. That's how I want to be remembered, as a total, total uh, musical human being. Well, actually, you're a, you're a musical uh, guru here. And also, <laughs> I think you told me about your legacy. Uh, when we talked yesterday, you mentioned about teaching. Yes. Well, I, I believe in teaching. I think teaching is, is the greatest art. I remember when I had the inn, one night Leonard Bernstein came in, and he was then the conductor of the Philip, New York Philharmonic, and quite a young man then. And... Uh, and he and we, we he, he sat down at my piano and played the single. He said, "Come join me. We'll play a duet." And so we sat together and played a, played some wonderful music. And the guests were were floored and all that. Then he said, "And what do you do when you're not running it in?" I said, "I teach at Carnegie." Oh, he said, "I would give up the Philharmonic. I would give everything if I, if I could just teach." And give every teaching is the noblest profession, the most beautiful thing in the world. And I, and I know I, that your son teaches. Can you tell us what Alexander is doing now? Yes, he. I taught him to play the piano, and he went from there into into um, a very good pianist, and and he and he's a graduate of the of the uh, Eastman School in Rochester, and uh, first first the um, uh, the Conservatory of Music in Oberlin, and then then the Eastman School of Music, and in married and. Um, and has a, a, an autistic daughter, which made him write a book of, of teaching autistic piano. And so he does that. Uh, uh, and he writes books and has published a book on autistic. And I'm very proud of him. And, and actually, um, his daughter has, has has come a long way with his with his help. <laughs> You are a win without competing man, Stephen. <laughs> I hope so. You compete with yourself, raising the bar higher and higher. You set mm. high standards for yourself, which you pursue with passion. You are open to opportunity and can change your behavior quickly. You have blueprints of right fits for your professional and personal life, which you seek out and capture. You take charge and manage the process to achieve your goals. Mm -hmm. You know how to pitch and broadcast a message to change other people's behavior. Thank you for sharing your exciting, colorful life, Stephen. Oh, well, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it very much, Arlene. I think you're doing a noble job here on through radio, and uh, wonderful. I'm sure you're helping a lot of a lot of people find their place in in the arts and and theater and and their whatever profession they choose. Well, thank you so much, and I do hope you will come back soon. I will. I will. Take care. Please join me again next Wednesday, June third at 5 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. My guest will be MIT PhD economist, Dr. Julianne Malvo, President, Bennett College for Women. Starting on June 10th through July 1st, 
I will be interviewing award-winning artists and then the reigning queen of the vampire novel who had four books on the New York Times bestseller list in one year. To learn more about my RightFit method, visit winwithoutcompeting.com and drbarrow, that's D-R-B-A-R-R-O dot com. To contact me directly, call 310-441-5305 or email drbarrow at winwithoutcompeting.com. Remember this trigger tip. Walk down the right fit road to find those right fits. You will change your life. Goodbye for now. This is Dr. Arlene, author, Win Without Competing, Career Success the Right Fit Way, Career Coach One, Founder and CEO, Barrow Global Search, Inc. Oh, my God.